Isaiah chapter 57. Isaiah chapter 57. And in tonight's chapter, we see that God speaks to the wicked. God speaks to the wicked. In Isaiah chapter 56, verse 9 through chapter 57, verse 2, it was the ungodly behavior of the leaders that God caused that caused Judah to fall to Babylon. If the prophets, priests, and rulers would have repented and turned to God in faith, he would have stepped in to help them. But they persisted in their rebellion. In chapter 56, verse 10, Isaiah sarcastically calls them blind watchmen who can't see the enemy coming and sleeping dogs who couldn't bark to warn the people even if they wanted to, even if they were awake. The leaders weren't alert. They loved to sleep, and when they were awake, they loved to eat and drink. Spiritual leaders are watchmen. Ezekiel makes that clear. Watchmen who must be awake to the dangers that threaten God's people. They're shepherds. They're shepherds who must put the care of the flock ahead of their own desires. And when the foreign attackers which Isaiah called beasts of the field in chapter 56, verse 9. When they came, uh, when they come, the shepherds must protect the flock, no matter what the danger might be. And God allowed the ungodly leaders to live and to suffer the terrible consequences of their sins. But the righteous people died before the judgment fell. The godly found rest and peace. The ungodly went into captivity, and some of them were killed. Rebellious people do not deserve dedicated spiritual leaders. When God's people reject his word, and they'd rather have worldly leaders, God may give them exactly what they want. Look around today. He will give them what they want, and he will let them suffer the consequences. When the people wanted Saul as a king, God told Samuel, warn them. Warn them about the king that you want to rule over you. And God gave them what they wanted. Six times in Samuel's warning, he said, he's going to take, he's going to take, he's going to take. He didn't serve the people. He used them for his own purposes. So again, we need to be careful. Verses 1 and 2 now of chapter 57. And it reads, the righteous perishes, and no man takes it to heart. Merciful men are taken away, while no one considers that the righteous is taken away from evil. He shall enter into peace. They shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his, right, in his right, uh, uprightness. Isaiah says here that good people pass away. The godly often die before their time. But he says, no one seems to care or wonder why. No one seems to understand that God is protecting them from the evil that's to come. And for those who follow godly paths, they will rest in peace when they die. He says, righteous people are perishing and no one sees the significance of it. In Isaiah's day, they might have been disappearing for spiteful reasons. Because of who they were and what they represented and who they represented. 
But even when the righteous aren't appreciated and recognized and honored, they enter into peace and rest. You know why? God takes them away to be with himself. The word peace in verse 2 refers to the final state of the righteous who rest in their deathbeds. No one understood that the righteous were being spared the judgment to come. Think about that. You know, to be unnoticed, even persecuted, but to walk on with God, that's not a disaster. To go to be with the Lord, it's not a disaster. Their death definitely leaves a spiritual and moral emptiness in the world. It leaves the world a worse place. For the believer dying, it's not a tragedy. It's a promotion for them. The only real tragedy is to lose your integrity with God. It's better to die in obedience than to live in disobedience and rebellion. In other words, as Paul said, if our living is for Christ, then our dying is gain. Death can be a gift taking us out of this evil or the evil that's to come. These godly men are troubled by the perverseness and the godlessness that's all around them while they're alive, while they live. Grieving over the fact that the nation is being sold down the river of no return, it becomes an act of mercy and a blessing to them when they die before the judgment falls. Before the evil comes, life with God is way better than this life. And that's the message that Isaiah is giving here. Verse 3. But come here, you sons of the sorceress, you offspring of the adulterer and the harlot. God now addresses the wicked. Even their ancestry is bad. And notice what he calls their mothers. He says, come here, you witches' children, you offspring of adulterers and prostitutes. During Judah and Jerusalem's last days, before Babylon came to the land and the city was filled and polluted with idols, King Hezekiah and King Josiah had led the people in destroying the idols and the high places where they worshipped. But as soon as an ungodly king took the throne, the people went right back to their old ways. Both Isaiah and Jeremiah told the people that God would punish them for breaking his law. But they continued on in the ways of the godless nations around them anyway. God sees idolatry as adultery and prostitution there in verse 3. And the people knew it was wrong to worship idols, but they proudly practiced carnal worship with no shame. Adultery and sorcery is idolatry. Idolatry involves seeking information from the, from the creature rather than the creator, as Saul did when he went to, to you know, try to get information from the witch of Endor. And as a result of bowing down in worship to the, creature, to the creature, so it's being unfaithful. That's being unfaithful to the only one who's to be worshipped and worthy to be worshipped. Verse 4. Whom do you ridicule? Against whom do you make a wide mouth? And stick out the tongue. Are you not children of transgression, offspring of falsehood? And then, to show them their wickedness even more, Isaiah asks some rhetorical questions. He says, who are you mocking? Who are you making faces and sticking your tongues out at, at someone else's expense? Now, obviously, these gestures, they were a sign of mockery. 
They were children of apostasy, disrespectful scorners. They were the ones persecuting the righteous. Now, up to this point, God hasn't done anything. He hasn't gotten, gotten involved. He hasn't intervened. Look around you today. Attacks are being made on the righteous. The believer, the church of Jesus Christ. And some are not having an easy time of it. The attacks are coming down hard and fierce, and the wicked seem to get by with it. Verse 5. Inflaming yourselves with gods under every green tree, slaying the children in the valleys under the clefts of the rock. He says to the people, you worship the fertility gods by having sex under those sacred trees of yours. You offer your children as sacrifices in the rocky caves near the stream beds. The word green tree was associated with pagan fertility rites. The slain of the children was associated with the worship of Molech and with demon worship. Now this is a picture of an idolatrous and sex-minded era. Notice, this was back then. And just look at today. Child sacrifice was condemned by most of the Hebrew prophets. And yet Ahaz practiced it. And his grandson followed in his footsteps. And today, we, we, our nation aborts children left and right. And now that, that, that partial birth abortion law, I mean, heinous, horrible, demonic, to think that it could be okay, that we could pass a law proving it, that it's okay. No, this, man hasn't changed from this time here. If not, if anything, he's gotten worse. Here, Isaiah is rebuking the wild orgy, or, orgies that were part of the, uh, the ceremonies of heathen worship. All of this was an abomination in the eyes of God. The wicked in the last days are the idolaters who have turned their backs on God. And they're guilty of the most disgusting immorality and murder. Adultery and murder are two of the horrible sins that we see in our time today. Together with greediness, which is idolatry. And this is the condition of the wicked today. Verse 6. Among the smooth stones of the stream is your portion. They, they are your lot. Even to them you have poured out a drink offering. You have offered a grain offering. Should I receive comfort in these? Verse 6 continues describing the depraved idol worship of the idol worshipers. Moffat translates this verse like this. You choose the slippery gods of the glen. You settle to have them. To them you pour out your libations and offer cereals. Am I to leave all that unpunished? You see, they worship everything except the living and true God. Verse 7. On a lofty and high mountain you have set your bed. Even there you went up to offer sacrifice. Here Isaiah describes the horrible things done on the high places in Palestine. And this refers to the sacrifice and the worship of Baal and Astarte. And through Israel's contact with their Canaanite neighbors, this is how the, earth, the Israelites learned these sinful practices. 
High mountains here refers to a place for idolatrous practices. The word bed here is associated with sexual aspects of their idol worship, of their idolatry. Mountain sanctuaries were and are common in the Near East. The prophet's accusation here now is that Judah, through her leaders, has set up on these high places of her lustful sacrifices. And again, he rebukes the practices of the immoral sexual cult. It's a picture of the last days. Look at verse 8. And behind the doors and their posts you have set up your remembrance. For you have uncovered yourself to those other than me. And have gone up to them. You have enlarged your bed and made a covenant with them. You have loved their bed where you saw their nudity. He says, you have put pagan symbols on your doorposts. And behind your doors, you have left me, God says, and you've climbed into bed with these detestable gods. You have committed yourselves to them. You you love to look at their naked bodies. Now, worshiping the sexual organs was common in pagan worship. Gordon, Bible commentator, translates it like this. He says, behind the door and the side post, you have set up your phallic symbol. And apart from me, you have stripped and gone up. You have distended your parts. You have bargained for those whose embraces you love. And with them, you have multiplied your harlotries while gazing on the phallus. You see, carving of the sexual organs were popular in worshiping. In worshiping Asherah, which led to the worshipers exposing themselves. And in the past, in the past, sin was done in secret. It was shameful before, but it's not today. We have parades today flaunting that sinfulness. Today it's done out in the open. And it's become shameless. And they put it out there for everybody to see. In the past, most immorality was kept secret. Men were ashamed of their sin, but not today. Not today. Wouldn't be talk, what, what wouldn't be talked about years ago is done out in the open today. It's, it is, it's common conversation. Sin has become a way of life. We've just given it a new name. That's all just a new name. See, what Isaiah is describing here isn't any different than what we see going on today. Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. We just try to make it something, or we try to call it something new. But it's the same old sin. There are no high standards anymore. The wheat and the tares are growing together, just like the Lord said they would. We see the difference between the righteous and the wicked all through this section. Verse 9. You went to the king with ointment and increased your perfumes. You sent your messengers far off and even descended to Sheol, which is the place of the dead. He says, you've given oil, olive oil, to Molech with many gifts of perfume. You've traveled far, even into the world of the dead, to find new gods to love. The word king here in verse 9 probably refers to the Ammonite god Molech, whose name means king. Molech worship with its perfumed depravity was typical of the Ammonites whose god was Molech. Moffat says, 
For Molech, you perfumed yourself with scent on scent. You made your messengers go far, even to the gods below. Sheol. Sheol here refers to the gods of the underworld, possibly associated with necromancy or sorcery. Verse 10. You are wearied in the length of your way. You did not say there is no hope. You have found the life of your hand. Therefore, you were not grieved. Isaiah says you grew weary in your search for new gods. You got tired of your search, for, but you never gave up. And how often do we see that in the world? People are looking, they don't know it, they're looking for new gods to serve. And they look and they look and they look and they get tired of looking because they, they're, they're not going to find the true and the living God through the ways that they're looking. But they never give up. They never tire of looking for new gods, new experiences. Isaiah says, you search yourself. You, I mean, sorry, you strengthen yourself. Though you got tired of searching for new gods, you strengthened yourselves and you continued on. Israel was ready to do whatever they could to serve other gods and idols. It seems like there was nothing or no, no, no service that was too much for them. Nothing seemed too tiresome for Israel and her desire for idolatry. In all of her efforts, Israel never said, hey, I give up. It's no use. And you tell people, hey, man, if you come to Jesus Christ, your, ser your search will be over. Your search will be over. There's where you will find fulfillment. There's where you'll find salvation. There's where you'll find all that you're looking for. And they'll reject him. And they'll go on looking for that fulfillment in everything but Jesus Christ. What Isaiah is saying is that idolatry proved to be very important and refreshing to the Israelites here. And that's why they didn't become weary nor weak in it. By not being willing to submit themselves to the truth, they find that their error, their mistake is exciting. And so like the Israel of old, they deceived themselves. Verse 11, <clears throat> and of whom have you been afraid or feared that you have lied and not remembered me nor taken it to your heart? Is it not because I have held my peace from of old that you do not fear me? Now, here's the Lord's rebuke to the people. He says to them, why were you more afraid of them than me? Are you afraid of these idols, these, these false gods, these useless gods? Do they terrify you? Is that why you've lied to me and forgotten me and the things that I've said? You've forgotten my words? He says, how is it you haven't even given me a second thought? And here's why for many people. Is it because I have been too gentle that you have no fear of me? I've been so gracious and so merciful that you haven't even thought about me. You've not even given me a second thought. He says, is it because of my long silence that you no longer fear me? 
Many people think because God hasn't done anything and he's not, he, do, he appears to be not doing anything, they say, hey, there, well, there's no God. Why isn't he doing anything? Why isn't he stopping so much that's going on in this world that's so ugly and violent? God's been quiet in that sense a long, a long enough time here. And now he steps in. And he asks more rhetorical questions. The Lord causes Israel to see what she's done. Why such cowardly fear, Israel? Men shouldn't let the fear of men cause them to forget and forsake the fear of God. And it's important that we don't mistake God's patience and his mercy and his grace for lack of interest. Ecclesiastes 8, 11 through 13 says this in the Living Bible. It says, just because God doesn't punish sinners instantly, people feel it's safe to do wrong. But even though a man sins a hundred times and still lives, I know very well that those who fear God will be better off, unlike the wicked, who will not live long good lives. Their days shall pass away as quickly as shadows because they don't fear God. You see, because God does not step in immediately and he doesn't punish the sinner, the wicked. They think, hey, like I said before, now there's no God. Or he doesn't care about what's going on. He doesn't see what's going on. He's not interested in what's going on. Verse 12. I will declare your righteousness and your works, for they will not profit you. Now, God says, I am going to expose your so-called righteousness. I'm going to expose this religion of yours. He says, none of your good deeds will help you. The word righteousness here is used sarcastically because false religion is far from righteous. Verse 13. When you cry out, notice, let your collection of idols deliver you. But the wind will carry them all away. A breath will take them. But he who puts his trust in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. God says, now... Let's see if your idols can save you when you cry out to them for help. He says a light breeze can knock your idols down. If you just breathe on them, they'll fall over. But he says, whoever trusts in me will inherit the land and possess my holy mountain. The thought here is is terribly sad. The worshiper of idols is calling out to the God that they made with their own hands to save them. Think about that. The idols, the gods that they worship, that they made with their own hands, that's who they're calling out to for de- to deliver them in their time of help, their time of need. The fate of false gods and their worshipers is compared with the faith of the meek. If you've, been, if you've been having a, a tough time trying to manage your own existence rather than receiving life as a gift from God, now's the time to start receiving what you've always wanted. But it's in Christ. He said, I am the way, the, the, the truth, and the life. I am the life. It's in me. I give it. 
In Christ, you're truly living. You're not just existing from day to day or weekend to weekend, searching for that whatever it is you're searching for that you think you'll find that's going to fulfill your life. The Bible says that we have eternity in our hearts. So you see, we have a God-shaped void in our hearts and people try to fill it with everything but God. But nothing fits that void. And that's why they're not fulfilled. There's only one that's eternal. And that eternity cannot be filled with anything but the true and living God. That eternal, that, that, that God-shaped void. Now, in verses 14 through 21... These verses deal now with removing the obstacles to reconciliation. Look at verse 14. And one shall say, heap it up, heap it up, prepare the way, take the stumbling block out of the way of my people. God says here, rebuild the road, clear away the rocks and the stones so that my people can return from captivity. This means here, removing every obstacle. For example, the sins that were just condemned. We have, we have to always keep in mind that, that the church has something to do about revival. And again, the church being us. We are the church. It's not the building. We are the church. We have to always keep in mind, again, that we have something to do about revival. And I shared that the last time that we were together. God is not putting up barriers to keep you away. He's open to you. He even insists that there's to be no obstacles at all to keep you away. If you can accept Jesus Christ, the way to God is open as far as God is concerned. Jesus said, I am the door. John 10, 9. I'm the door. And anyone who enters in through me will be saved. And he will come in and he will go out freely. And he will find pasture. You see, the hang-up is not with God. The problem is not with God. It's in our self-centeredness and in our unbelief, in our doubt. We treat God like a dead-end street rather than our destination. We're the ones slowing down our own progress. Now, what does God do? He keeps the way back to Him free from every stumbling block, including our own sins. And if you've been wondering how to find God, verse 15 tells you. Look at verse 15. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Notice, I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. This is how you find God. Humble yourself. And he'll find you. God isn't like us. Now for us, there's no neighborhood that's too good for us to move up to if we can afford it. But you know what? The thing with God, he doesn't value moving up. He He values moving down. Not because God feels uncomfortable dwelling in in the high and lofty place, but because down low is where he finds the people who are open to him. And it wouldn't hurt us to bring ourselves down a notch or two. 
especially because that's where we'll find God. Lowliness is the humility that says where I really belong is at the bottom. What I really deserve to be is a nobody. Because he's everybody. Jesus said in Luke 14, 7 through 11, when you're invited by anyone to a wedding feast, don't sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you comes and says to you, give place to this man, and then you begin uh, with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit down in the lowest place so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Every one of us, when we come into church, should be thinking, hey, where's the lowest place? Where's the lowest place? Because that's where I belong. And I'll take the lowest place. I'll take whatever God has for me. Because whatever God has for me, man, that's the best. And if God wants to honor me more, hey, it's up to him. Romans 12, 3, Paul said, And because of God's gracious gift to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you should. Instead, be modest in your thinking. Philippians 2, 3 and 4. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interest, but take an interest in others too. Esteem others higher than yourself. The high and lofty one mentioned in verse 14 notices and he visits the lowly with revival. God blesses lowliness. He blesses humility. And a church that's filled with humility to Jesus Christ is ready for revival. Obedience and love and prayer and fellowship. That's when a church is ready for revival. Verse 16. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the spirit would fail before me and the souls which I have made. God says, I won't contend forever. He says, neither will I always be angry. He's saying, because, you know, if I stayed angry, the spirit of man would faint and would be consumed before me. He says, and my purpose for for salvation of men's souls would be frustrated. Verse 17 and 18. For the iniquity of his covetousness, I was angry and struck him. I hid and was angry, and he went on backsliding in the way of his heart. Verse 18. I have seen his ways and will heal him. I will also lead him and restore comforts to him and to his mourners. God says, I was angry. So I punished these greedy people. I withdrew myself from them. But they kept on going in their own stubborn way. He says, I've seen what they do. He sees everything that we do. You know what? But he says, I'll heal them anyway. I'll lead them and I'll comfort those who mourn. God strikes men or punishes them in their sin and rebellion so that he might heal their sadness and restore their joy. And because of man's wicked covetousness, God struck or punished the sinner, and God hid himself from him. But man went on in his rebellion anyway. 
All sin is a statement that says it's self against the will of God. Sin is saying, hey, it's me going against the will of God. But now God says here, I will heal, I will lead, and I will restore. And this means full comfort to the broken and those touched and filled with godly sorrow for their sin. Those who are contrite and humble, broken and mourning over their sin, forsaking their sin. Verses 19 through 21. I create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to him who is far off and to him who is near, says the Lord. And I will heal him. But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. God is the author of peace. The Prince of Peace, our Lord. Here God offers the greeting to all. He says, peace, peace to him who is afar off and to those who are near. This means everyone, everyone everywhere, open invitation to find peace in God through his son. But the wicked, they continue on in their restless. They continue to be restless and they're in turmoil. Like the churning sea, he says here. He says their lives show that there's no inner peace. They have no inner peace and no righteousness. Why? Because their thoughts are restless with evil which is constantly being lived out. It's fleshed out. You'll find it in the business world. You'll find it in, so, in the social world. You'll find it in the religious world. You'll find conflict just about everywhere you go. There is no peace for the wicked. God says there is no peace for the wicked. And you can't make peace in the human heart apart from God. So far, no one's been able to do it. Isaiah says, The wicked are like the troubled sea. It can't rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. Those under the bondage of sin, they can't rest. Because, you see, sin produces turmoil and confusion. And this is probably one of the best pictures of, of the wicked found in Scripture. Isaiah likens them to the troubled and restless sea. The wicked person cannot find rest or peace in their wicked ways. And he keeps going. He continues on like a hunted criminal criminal who's looking for somebody to deliver them, to, 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 to find safety in. And he has no peace in his heart and mind at all. If the world can have peace today without God, then it's a contradiction to the word of God. Because God says, there is no peace for the wicked. You can't contradict God's word. The wicked cannot have peace in the world, and they don't have it today. God says that the wicked will have no peace because godlessness knows no peace. Scripture never describes the wicked in a way that would make the righteous look inferior. Sometimes to to man's eye, to the human eye, it seems like the wicked prosper while the righteous suffer. I mean, Asaph went through that in Psalm 73. He says, I I walk with God. I am doing all of the right things. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. You know, I'm walking with God. And and, and he says, 
and, and it just everything seems to be falling apart. He said, and I look at the wicked, and they're prospering. They're not having any problems. And a lot of times that's true. A lot of times that's true. But then Isaiah said, uh, I'm sorry, um, Asaph said, until I went into the sanctuary. Where he sat before God, and God spoke and says, hey, this is going to be the best for them. Ours is still waiting for us when we get to heaven. To the spiritual eye, this seems like an apparent contradiction. But that's all it is. It's just apparent. It seems like a contradiction. The righteous are the ones who have it the best, though they might not think of it at the time. When life is over and eternity is is in view, this truth is going to be very clear to all. In closing, verse 20, there is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. In verse 20, we have a description, like I said, of the wicked. It's a warning to all. It doesn't encourage anybody to go the way of the wicked. This verse shows that the wicked lack peace, they lack power, and lack purity. First of all, the wicked have no peace. Isaiah said the wicked are like the restless, troubled sea. It's a sea of turmoil. There is no peace. The wicked are tossed around like the waves in a storm. Sin kills peace. It robs you of peace. It's why the world is always at war. Sin does not bring peace to any land or any soul. It only troubles the land and the soul of man. Secondly, the wicked have no power. The wicked are like the restlessly sea that Solomon says, it cannot rest. Sin overpowers the sinner. Sin makes the sinner weak. It doesn't have the power. The man doesn't have the power to overcome his evil habits. The sinner can't stop the turmoil that comes to his life, and he can't get control back of his life because he lacks the power to do so. Sin enslaves a person. They become a servant to sin. And only through the redemption of Jesus Christ can man get back that power to overcome evil and to be free from the bondage of sin. And third, the wicked lack purity. Isaiah says, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. The wicked are foul and filthy, like the wild waves of the sea, which just throws dirt around the shore and all the filth that may come along with it. The wicked are always throwing up filth wherever they are. Their mouths continually spew out dirt. Their minds think dirt. Their deeds are dirty. But Christ is the answer here. And in 1 John 1, 7, we read that the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin and makes Him clean before God. Father, we thank You so much for this powerful chapter, Lord. And, and God, we thank You for Your love and Your grace. Father, we thank You that You remove all the obstacles that there are from coming to You, Lord. That You opened the way and You did that through Your Son, Jesus Christ, who is the way. We come to Him. We come to Him. And we find eternal life. And Lord, we pray that, Lord, if there's anyone here or there's anyone watching that doesn't know You, that's not turned their life over to Christ, that, Father, they would confess to You this evening, God, that they are sinners and that they have sinned. 
and that they are sorry for their sin, that they, that they would ask you for forgiveness of their sins tonight, God. And that, Father, you'd cleanse them from all unrighteousness, that you'd fill them with your Holy Spirit. And, Father, that they'd begin to walk with you, to grow in, in, in a new life with you, Lord and give you praise, honor, and glory for dying for all of us, God, that we may live, that we may live with you in all of eternity. So, Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your abounding grace and your enduring mercies that last forever. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.